good. I mean, I'd be kind of surprised to see a scientist clean shaven anyways. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. Especially a, a field <laughs> physiologist. But anyways, yeah. special yeah. guest. Thanks for coming on the show, Trevor. Thanks for having me, Nick. Professor up at Mount Royal University in Canada. Which part of Canada is this in? Uh, we're in Alberta, which is uh, Calgary, sort of, as you said? Yeah, right. Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Alberta. So we're just one province uh, to the right of the far left. And we, but we're all the way right um, from a political standpoint. So, yeah, <laughs> I figured. Yeah, we're the, we're Texas, we're Texas North, Texas, <laughs> we're Texas, the Texas North, of yeah. Canada. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and Wild West when it comes to science, that's for sure. <laughs> well, one of the one of the few remaining field physiologists that is still going in the field, which well, is trying. And, yeah. and when I say field physiologist, I mean like uh, actually doing research on humans out in the. <clears throat> Outside of a research laboratory type of setting, yeah, in their natural which I environment, have a, a great admiration for that's for sure. Well, we'll bring you along it's sometime. Not Nick. Something <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. I I I had like this uh, midlife this uh, what quarter life crisis, midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll see how long I make it. It could be yeah, a midlife yeah. crisis in uh, you know in <laughs> academics world, but where you know coming from doing the goats and the the chronic hypercapnia and having them in these environmental chambers and you know having to uh, try to suture off a carotid aneurysm in uh, high CO2 in the middle of the night. Wow. Uh, we're trying to keep a, a breathing mask on there. And then you're, you know, you're sticking a little optogenetic wire into a anesthetized mouse. It's, uh, you know. Man, it was impressive work. Well, it's basically field work. That's stuff you did. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But that's, uh, we'll keep the goats for some other goat podcast maybe well the goats will be relevant but anyways cardiovascular physiologist respiratory physiologist cardiorespiratory physiologist um studying high altitude and acclimatization and all other sorts of cerebrovascular physiologists let's add that in there why not (laughs) sure yeah Um, my fingers are in many pies (laughs) in part in part because of the context i work in but uh, i'm dabbling in a lot of things so basically not very good at any of it, uh, but, but interested in lots of things. So for, uh, you know, I like to, I like to describe myself as someone who's interested in how the heart, lungs, brain, and kidneys talk to each other in response to stressors like acute and chronic blood gas challenges, you know, from your perspective, high hypercapnia, high CO2, <clears throat> you know, low CO2, low oxygen, those kinds of things. So that's, uh, you know, my, my, my bread and butter and kind of where my heart is, where I was trained is the chemoreceptor responses to changes in blood gases. And that hasn't really gone away, even though I've added, <clears throat> you know, brain blood flow and renal perspectives to the mix as well. It all works in there. Mm-hmm. And this big feed forward and it's feedback all, cycle loop. It's all connected. It's we all always connected. talk about the, uh, the brain kidney axis or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, you still find glial cells in the kidney. So it's all there. It's crazy. Yeah. But <clears throat> either way. So when you got into high altitude, how did you get into the world of high altitude research? Did you do that in graduate school or? No, not at all. Um, uh, as I think you probably know, I trained in comparative animal physiology. So I was doing pretty crazy surgeries, much like you, uh, just in a, in a rodent model in, in small rats instead. So nothing, nothing as sophisticated as you guys were doing, but um, you know, some, some surgical perspectives on looking at how different chemoreceptors talk to each other in response to blood gas stressors. So that was where my PhD was in Cal- the University of Calgary um, under, under uh, Richard Wilson. But I, you know, my interest in in high altitude came way before that. Um, I I took an undergraduate course in environmental physiology uh, in my sort of third year or my fourth year of undergrad, um, and that was in probably 1998 or 99 when I took that course. And and um, uh, and the book Into Thin Air had just come out. John Krakauer's uh, book about the 1996 Everest disaster had just come out. So we read the book as part of the course, and you know, learned about Kathmandu and learned about Lukla the you know, the sort of most dangerous airport in the world and, um, and the Everspace Camp Trek. Um, I never thought I'd go and see it for myself, but I kind of fell in love with the stories of big mountains back then and would read all those books about adventurers. I myself was never an alpine climber, but I do a lot of scrambling uh, in the Canadian Rockies, which are just down the road from here. Um, but, but really, I have to credit Phil Ainsley, who's at UBC Okanagan, uh, one province away, because he'd been going to the Everest region for many years. Uh, with lots of other researchers and and was lucky enough that he dragged me along on an expedition to the Everest region in 2012. And so I was just kind of a hangers on, brought a student with me uh, and learned a lot. And, you know, and I was just starting to work with humans at that point. 
um, because as I said, I trained with animals. Uh, so it was kind of a bit of a postdoc for me to just work with these international researchers on various questions related to how we, uh, how we acclimatize to high altitudes. So we spent three weeks at the Italian pyramid lab at 5,000 meters. And it really was a life-changing Jeez. experience for me. And I decided, Hey, I want to do one of these for myself. And so in 2015, I put my own team together and we were a week from leaving and my phone, it was exploding one Saturday morning. Did you hear about Nepal and the, uh, the 2015, uh, Uh-oh. earthquake 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit the Kathmandu Valley. 19 people died at base camp, probably over 9,000 people in the Kathmandu Valley died. So they didn't need tourism. They need aid. <laughs> so we canceled in short yeah. order and dodged that bullet. Um, and then we're able to put a team back together and go back in 2016 uh, and then 2017 and 2018 and then shifted our focus to the White Mountains in California in 2019. And we're about to go back uh, to the Everest region uh, this May. So that's a, a quick and dirty history of... <laughs> So what is that, 5,000 meters roughly? That's, uh, what is that for actual, like, American Texas units? It's 15,000 feet? (laughs) Yeah, uh, 3.3, for the (laughs) listeners at home, 3.3 feet per meter. And I'll let you do the math. (laughs) But um, I think in meters, we're we're Canadians, man. (laughs) So Everest Base Camp is about 5,300 meters. So about half the available oxygen of sea level, of where you're at in Seattle. Yeah, that's not a comfortable... That's not a comfortable altitude. We did a few training camps for when I was racing skiing mm. at uh, like 10,000, 11,000 feet. Mm. And even then, you start to walk up the stairs and you're like, oh, yeah. you, <laughs> you know, Darth Vader. just yeah. dogging it. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's one of the things is like, it, you know, some people were totally fine with it, but other people were just completely having a miserable time at the altitude and other people got up there and even if they were lowlanders living at sea altitude or living at sea level you bring them up to eleven thousand feet and it was like nothing happened like yeah. at all but yet other person like other people would be on bed rest to the point of like there's they're not skiing that's for sure they're barely even yeah. getting out of bed yeah that's that's the big mystery yeah yeah there's like i mean part of what you're researching, right, is like, where is that variability? Like, where is like, what is is what making some people sick and what's making other people not sick? But what is it like, what have you figured out as to like, is there anything that's just like a defining factor of saying, yep, you're going to be terminally ill when you get up there and you're going to (laughs) be thriving? Yeah, that's the big mystery in high altitude physiology is who's going to do well at altitude and who's not. It's a, you know, it's a pretty profound stressor uh, because the higher you go, the less oxygen there is available to you. Um, and some people, as you said, do great. Uh, I luckily ha- do great. I'm a semi-obese middle-aged man um, with Western European <laughs> low le- you know, lowlander ancestry. I have no business doing well at altitude, and yet I do. And you know, I've seen uh, really young, fit people have to get sent down with you know, pulmonary edema. Um, you know, which just means a bit of water in the lungs, um, and that can be life-threatening. And so, you know, it's it, it. You know, I went into this thinking, oh, it'd be great if we can come up with a test or a battery of tests that we could do in the lab at low altitude and predict who will do well at altitude when we arrive, depending upon the ascent profile. Um, and you know, that would have tremendous utility for you know athletes, as you said, or military um, expeditions, or climbers, or trekkers. And I've come to think, you know, maybe this is good for general audiences, because I don't really have a scientific answer to that question. And I'm not sure it's really achievable, because how you respond to mm. a, an acute low oxygen challenge in the lab, um, and we can, you know, we can measure yeah. all kinds of things, has not necessarily anything to do with how you adapt, or, you know, maybe that's the wrong word that's, uh, but how you change over time, uh, with exposure to chronic low oxygen. So I might have a really robust mm-hmm. ventilatory response to low oxygen in the lab, but that doesn't mean I'll get really, really sensitive up high. Whereas other people might have a really, I don't have a very robust hypoxia ventilatory response, it's called, in the lab myself, but I do well at altitude. And so I think it's, they're just different stressors. Yeah. The acute response and the longer term responses are different. But on top of that, you know, well, there's, all, there's all these organ systems that talk to each other, as you know, in response to the low oxygen. And so one organ system might respond in a strong way and another might not very much at all. And they talk to each other. And I think it's just sort of this knife edge of uh, yeah. just the right amount, Goldilocks's porridge, you know, the right amount of, uh, of change over time that makes you do well. Whereas if you go too far or not far enough, you don't do well at all. 
Um, so I, I'm not sure it's a solvable problem. I think the best teacher is experience. You just got to go and find out for yourself how you do. See what happens. <laughs> yeah. that, that's always the funny thing that I sometimes see, you know, when, when we're taking like results from studies of people in living in different parts of the environment or saying that, you know, people that the Inuit or something that live in extremely harsh, cold environments, or we take someone that lives in extremely hot environments, and then we say, okay, well, they're healthier than us in some respect. And so if we can just immerse ourselves in some cold once in a while or immerse ourselves in some heat once in a while, then we should have the same benefits. And it's like, it's not like they're, they're living there acutely, like, right, chronically. Right. It's not the same as just like dunking your head in an ice bucket. But yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> do you like... <laughs> like, like you're not going to become a Sherpa no. by just, you know, 10 minutes a day, putting yourself on some hypoxic mixture. No, but no, you know, yeah. I mean, there's the, there's genetic components, right? So, you know, I like to think of the continuum of adaptation to be, you know, acute responses in the lab. We can do that to us tomorrow if you wanted to. Uh, what about, uh, spending weeks at altitude, then you acclimatize, but then what if you grow up at altitude? So you have developmental adaptations. And then what if your, your, your population, your ancestors have been living at high altitude for generations, for millennia, then you have genetic changes that are selected for. And, you know, we've got three main high altitude populations in the world that have genetic differences than lowland populations that allow them to work live, reproduce at high altitude. And so, you know, for you and I as Western lowlanders, in terms of our ancestry to go up, we might do well for a few weeks, but that goes away when we come back down, you deacclimatize again. Um, so those aren't persistent changes, whereas the, the genomic changes of these groups are persisting. So it's difficult to tease apart why the Tibetan Highlanders or Sherpa are so good at altitude, because it could be all of those things, that they have robust acclimatization uh, responses because they're living up there. So they're chronically acclimatized and they've got developmental changes because they grew up there and they've got genetic changes because their ancestry is up there. Um, and so it makes it complex as a, as a question to study. Yeah. Is it, so here's, here's a question for a high altitude guy. The, what is the common notion for athletics? Is it train high, live low, or is it live low or live high, train low? What is the, what yeah. is the acronym or something like that? Yeah. It's live high, um, train low. Yeah. Yeah, live high, train low. And uh, so a lot of people will do that. Like they'll they'll train, you know, live high, train low. Right. Yes. So yeah. uh, a lot of people will do that for a certain amount of time for like a couple weeks during a, a training camp. But that's not I mean, those those effects that you get are pretty short lived, aren't they? Yeah. For the most part, once you yeah. go back to a training or living low. Yeah. So I remember coming back from Nepal one year and I'm a cyclist, um, not a very good one, but uh, I was going for a bike ride with some friends and I was out climbing them on hills because I still had the, you know, the higher uh, hemoglobin concentration in my blood from being from acclimatizing for weeks at altitude. So I was smoking them on the hills. And then a few weeks later, I was going back to being the slowest in the group again. <laughs> and so, you know, I lost, I lost <laughs> those effects um, in, in a couple of weeks, right? So, you know, the problem with those, uh -huh. those training models is, you know, you might derive some benefit from living high in terms of, say, increases in red blood cell concentration, increases in oxygen carrying capacity, those kinds of things. Um, and they, they always say train low because they can train at the highest possible intensity uh, because intensity of training is going to help your performance as well. And so if you can do the two things, acclimatize to altitude, so you increase your oxygen carrying capacity for when you need it, you know, kind of natural blood doping. Um, and the, but that also train high intensity is low, you know, that's probably one of the best combinations, but it depends on where the uh, performance is going to be. If you're going to play soccer at a high altitude city, then maybe you should train there as well. Yeah. And so I think it's more complex than just saying live high, train low. The other problem too, is some people, you know, if you live high um, or you simulate high altitude in a, in a tent in your bedroom, um, you know, everyone gets sleep apnea up there. So now your sleep is fragmented. Um, some people overdo it in terms of their red blood cell response and their blood becomes too thick and too viscous, um, and which, you know, which can be maladaptive as well. Jello blood. So, yeah. <clears throat> I'll just stick with the blood yeah. doping. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be working. So, <laughs> uh, but, but when you're, okay, so how big of a group was it that you, that you usually take to base camp at Everest when you go and do that? Is it like 25 people or something like that? Yeah. Um, I think my first year I had 23. Um, so 2017, we had 31. So between 25 and 30 people, that's about as big a group as we can sort of yeah. manage from a logistical standpoint. Cause we're staying in lodges all the way up. Right. 
Um, uh, so, yeah, I was going to say, because you bring 30 people up plus pretty much the entire lab as far as equipment, right? Yeah, like six how, or eight how, Pelican cases. Yeah. <laughs> do you just like load them on a donkey or how do you carry all that stuff up there? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, on, oh. on donkeys or horses or yaks or people. And so what I'm really happy about is we work with the Sherpa, the Sherpa community directly uh, and hire each expedition hires about 10 people, maybe five guides and five porters. Mm. Um, and so I like that because we're helping create employment for the local communities, um, but they're carrying all the stuff. You know, we've got these 50 pound Pelican cases full of lab gear, as you said, on the backs of yaks, uh, or sometimes uh, a porter brings it up as well. Um, so it's pretty remarkable what these people can do in terms of carrying loads at altitude. Um, uh, that's crazy. So we're, we we just have these small little backpacks with our water bottle and our phone, and <laughs> and that's it. And you got then, the yeah the Sherpa with a big old case in the back going, yeah. "Let's go, you Americans or you, you Canadians." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, that's pretty funny. So you set up a do, do you have like a well, I guess not because it's such a popular route, but is there like a, a big building at base camp that you can just set everything up or do they have these little yurts or I don't even know. What does it look yeah. like up there? Everspace camp is just a big tent city that emerges every sort of April, May. Um, and, you know, just to be um, just to be honest, we, we haven't we, we haven't spent a lot of time at base camp. Base camp is just the sort of like place we go to to say we saw it. We I've uh, implemented the Everspace camp trick for me is a incremental ascent model. So you know, we can start with baseline measurements in Calgary or in Kathmandu, pretty similar altitudes, fly up, you know, to 2,800 meters and start the trek, you know, have a yeah. rest day at 3,400 meters and do some measurements there, have a rest day at 3,800 meters, do some rest, some measurements there, have another rest day at 4,200 meters, do some more measurements. And so we set up the, our little labs, makeshift labs in lodge dining rooms or lodge bedrooms. Um, and then base camp really is just a destination to say we saw it. There is a, you know, I mentioned the Italian pyramid lab. There is a lab that's shaped like a pyramid that's modeled after the mountain behind it called Pomori, which is pyramid shaped. Uh, the Italians built, I think it was the 1990s. It's kind of an environmental and physiology research station uh, and oh, it's cool. self, you know, self-contained. It's powered by solar panels. And so you can set up there and we did that in 2012, set up there for a few weeks. So that's just around the corner from Everspace Camp. You know, we're at 5,000 meters there. Um, so there are some places that you can set up and Base Camp itself has got an emergency tent and you know, they're getting yeah. more and more luxurious in terms of their accommodations there for the climbing expeditions. But my time at base camp has always just been for an hour or two looking around. Yeah. <clears throat> pretty soon, uh, pretty soon you guys will be on the donkeys riding up instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can get, just get completely yeah. get rid of the whole athletic part of it. But yeah. how, how, is there, is there any pushback or is it pretty well, um, welcomed as far as like the research coming from like bringing the equipment up and doing all the stuff uh on humans or even involving the the locals is there any sort of cultural pushback or is it welcomed or is it encouraged or my experience has been incredible generosity uh the sherpa community you know I've been told by some of my Sherpa friends that, and I should just say the word Sherpa is often used as a job description, which is, I think, yeah. the the wrong way to think about it. That it's an ethnic group. They're Tibetan Highlanders that just happen to live on the other side of the Nepali border. Um, so the you know the word Sherpa means uh, an ethnic group that lives at high altitude. But those communities have been incredibly generous, and so many of them work in tourism. They own lodges. They act as trekking guides or climbing guides. Um, and so, you know, the, we bring employment by going there, um, you know, this year we're going to go back and do some work on Sherpa as well. So, um, but my experience has been that they're really, really generous about it. Um, and you know, we have to play nice in the local sandbox with respect to ethics applications and stuff like that too. But, uh, we haven't had any, any problems around, um, reluctance to get involved at all. Yeah. That's it. I was I was curious about that because I, I didn't know. Are they typically is that like a Buddhist type of religion or is it a? Yeah, I think so. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, the the huh. largest um, monastery in the whole Kumbu Valley is it in a village called Tengboshe at thirty eight hundred meters, and it's this incredibly huge uh, Buddhist monastery that you can go inside and just sit and listen to them chant. It's pretty uh, it's pretty moving actually. That's crazy. <clears throat> I know. I once in a while I um. I'll have a conversation on when I was having the live chats, um, some of the people interested or they were, you know, had converted themselves to a Buddhist monk or something like that. Um, the, the interest that they have in a lot of the breath work was kind of like beyond what even 
we, we look at for a lot of times, even in the respiratory physiology focused type of research, mm-hmm. but it'd be kind of cool to see, uh, how much of the, the stuff that they do that they found behavioral effects of controlling your breathing and, you know, will actually translate over into a neurological phenomenon within the brain. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. either way, they're very interested in that kind of stuff I yeah. found, which was kind of cool and to meditation see, and that kind especially of stuff, because, right? yeah, especially because they're like super athletes for a lot of them when it comes to uh, breathing, at least the ones that are living over in that region. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, we're still not entirely sure how how it is that Sherpa are such incredible athletes at high altitude. And so we'd love to try and figure that question out at some point. <laughs> All right. So, so walk me through the process. So, so we, we, you you measure baseline variables, measure people's breathing, their blood. I'm, I'm assuming, did you sample blood? I'm guess I'm, I'm guess I'm, I'm guessing you didn't uh, sample cerebral spinal fluid as they did back in the heyday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but <laughs> doing uh, spinal taps on each other back yeah. in the the old days of the was Crazy. that Utah or Colorado or something where they were doing that. But yeah, yeah. Mount, Mount although Evans I guess according to yeah, I mean according to my former mentor, I guess they would sort of draw straws to see who could be the one to get the spinal tap for the day because then you just got to lay in the tent for the rest of the day yeah. and you didn't have to do all the rest of the work, but <laughs> yeah, know. it's great being a laying in a bed with a, to hang, just hang out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Laying in a bed with a massive headache after a spinal tap by a questionable, right. You know, questionably <laughs> sterile needle versus, <laughs> versus, yeah. uh, just picking up some trash. I think I'd probably pick the latter, but yeah. you know, yeah. Talking about the wild so west, <laughs> that stuff was, uh, yeah, that, that was literally. the wild west of research for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I got a kick out of, you know, when you finally have that realization when you're going through the the papers in, you know, respiratory physiology class. And then all of a sudden you notice that the subjects, that's when they still use the initials for subjects in the papers. And then you start to realize, like, wait a minute, all of my professors have the same initials. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's true. The author, the author list and the participant list have the same initials. Yeah. Well, it's pretty, pretty normal. You're like, did you do this study? Uh, yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Ah, okay. No, yeah, that makes sense. It's pretty normal for, yeah, for the research team to act as participants. But I think there's a lot more scrutiny from ethics boards now to make sure that there's no coercion. <laughs> you know, but we all, yeah. kind of get, we all kind of understand <laughs> that, uh, you know, we have a vested interest in the data. And so people are often willing to participate. <clears throat> yeah. Depending so, on the study. So you do the, yeah, that's true. Do you have a big drop-off rate as far as like they get halfway through the study and they're like, nah, I just can't do this anymore? Yeah, not at all. Uh, we did, um, like, as you know, because uh, um, we talked about this paper years ago, but we did some arterial blood draws all the way up and we managed to get 14 people to say yes to arterial blood draws at, at 5,200 wow. meters at a, at a village, um, at the, you know, right, right close to Everest Base Camp. And so you know, people are pretty good about it actually. And I think it's just nice to have the right skills involved. We had a respiratory therapist who was good at it doing those draws. Um, so I, I wouldn't say we have high dropouts at all actually, but I, you know, we're not doing cerebral spinal fluid <laughs> measurements. So that's probably part of yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> That's still, I mean, even to, well, maybe the fact that the, you brought them all the way to Nepal. So now that they're not, they have no choice, but <laughs> they're, oh, they they're, I, I suppose like, Getting yeah, they can always say no, but but uh, having a a group that's committed enough to fly you know halfway across the world yeah. in order to do a study, you got that's a right. pretty good group when you do that. Yeah, yeah. So, you, so you do the baseline. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So you do the baseline measurements, and then then you fly everything and everybody, and you know put everything on a plane, fly over to Nepal, and then uh, then do you do another set of measurements somewhere? near is there even a sea level at in nepal i'm not sure what like the base no. altitude is or is it pretty high up there so i calgary where i live is at 1100 meters um or so mm-hmm. and Kathmandu is about 1400 meters so they're pretty close and so we've often done baseline testing either in our lab in calgary or when an international team arrives in Kathmandu, we'll just set up a, a bedroom as a lab and do measurements there um, uh-huh. and so you know it's not sea level which you know we get some criticism for in reviews sometimes, but it's still pretty low altitude yeah. relative to where we're going. So we'll make measurements in Kathmandu, and like you said, we'll pack everything up in Pelican cases and fly it up to this little airport at twenty eight hundred meters, um, and start the trek. And you know we'll 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 trek between three and seven hours a day to get to the next lodge, and our stuff just magically arrives <laughs> when we're there, and we can unpack everything and set up a lab again and make some more measurements. So. 
Um, the highest measurements I've ever done Jeez. is around 5,200 meters or so. That's high. That's, yeah. that's up there. You're, yeah, breathing, a, you're breathing pretty fast at that point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's lots of headaches. But, um, <laughs> people aren't feeling very well for sure. <laughs> Literally and figuratively when it comes mm-hmm. to logistics. So, so, you, so what is it that you're focusing on? So you're, you're measuring their breathing, like just how much they're breathing at any given time. And then you're comparing it to the stimuli mm-hmm, to breathe mm-hmm. the, uh, the oxygen and the, do you, do you even worry about CO2 or do you just look at mainly the oxygen at that point since CO2 no. is usually going down? Yeah. I mean, we have to worry about the CO2 because it, it affects acid base balance. Um, and also, you know, as the, as you breathe more, you blow off your carbon dioxide, which actually, uh, sort of withdraws the stimulus to breathe. And so surprisingly at 5,000 meters, you're not breathing that much more than you were down low because there's this complex interplay between the low oxygen being uh. the stimulus to breathe, but then the resulting low CO2 being an inhibit, uh, you know, having an inhibitory effect on breathing. So you reach this new steady state where you're not breathing that much more than you were down low. Um, and that probably plays into whether you get sick or not, because if you're not breathing enough, you don't protect your oxygen enough. And then you get acute mountain sickness and have to get sent down if it's too severe. Um, so I'm just really interested in those the, uh, the interplay between all these stimuli and how people do with respect to a respiratory response. Because the classic laboratory tests, the so-called hypoxic ventilatory response tests in a lab require like sophisticated gas analyzers and gas tanks and valve systems and computer controllers. Um, and you give you know people short or longer term low oxygen stimulus. But it's very difficult to replicate that stuff up high because the equipment's so difficult. Plus, to make someone more hypoxic when they're already hypoxic sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> I've seen people pull their mouthpieces oh, out, yeah, yeah. you know, with extreme discomfort. Um, and so, you know, I've been interested over the last couple of years of trying to develop, you know, a, a battery of tests that you can take up that are quite portable, that can still give you some meaningful information about how people are doing. Um, I guess the the field will decide if my some of these metrics are useful or not. <laughs> um, but it's just you know the portability I think is a is a is a good thing because you can now apply it to larger trekking groups perhaps than just a couple of researchers yeah. hanging out in a lab somewhere you know. Or even I mean any advancement in ambulatory assessment of cardiorespiratory parameters is a a big thing you know. Yeah. The it still you know it shocks me when sometimes you get some of the ambulatory data from even the ambulatory like EKG, which is probably one of the more invasive types. You know, let alone like ambulatory blood pressure when you're having people measure their blood pressure at home. Mm-hmm. You know, the the quality of the data sometimes is you have to have such a gigantic sample group in order to get any sort of sense of what's going on. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. anything anything that's improving the ambulatory assessments of those things is, is good yeah but that's my anyway hope. so so you, you yeah so, so you take the you, you measure the breathing you measure their blood is there anything you're, you're you're also looking at um some of the blood pressure and heart rate and all that kind of stuff too right yeah we've kind of developed these this battery of what i call daily measures where every morning everyone gets up early and we measure you know those basic things ventilation blood pressure heart rate oxygen saturation uh, entitled carbon dioxide, so how much CO2 you're breathing out, uh, often take measurements of uh, hemoglobin concentration. So, you know, pretty straightforward stuff that can be descriptive in terms of how people are doing. And then on the rest days, we'll often do more sophisticated studies, depending on what our question is. But the new thing that we're interested in this year is the spleen. So, I, you know, I only learned this a couple of years ago, I'm embarrassed to admit that the spleen contracts. Who knew that the spleen gets smaller in response to stress like breath holding or exercise or high altitude. And so we use ultrasound to measure the spleen volume and we can measure it, you know, before and after some sort of stressor. And what happens when the spleen contracts is it ejects a storage of red blood cells out into the circulation and presumably increasing oxygen carrying capacity. Um, And so that's been kind of one of our new focuses is looking at, uh, at splenic contraction in response to stressors like breath holding or exercise. What is the what does the spleen of a Sherpa look like compared to a, a normal lowlander at, at just at rest? Like yeah. not its contractility, but is it do they have bigger spleens or do they have like yeah, they smaller do. spleens, I guess? Because maybe we, they have more red blood cells. We've uh, we've just learned this uh, and, uh, and it's not published yet, but um, that the resting spleen <laughs> volume of Sherpa are larger than lowlanders. 
And so what we think is going on oh. is they have, because it's larger, and, and so as we ascend and we get more and more hypoxic, that's a stimulus for the spleen to contract. So us lowlanders, when we ascend, the spleen contracts tonically. It gets smaller along the way and stays small. Um, and yeah. so our capacity to contract it in response to, say, an exercise stressor is limited. The dimmer switch is kind of all the way, right? Whereas Sherpa, yeah. it appears, have larger resting spleens at altitude than us. And therefore, their capacity to contract might be larger. And thus, their ability to mobilize more red blood cells from that splenic contraction during exercise might also be enhanced. And that's what we want to investigate this year. Um, so oh, it cool. might contribute to some of the uh, incredible exercise capacity that Sherpa have at altitude that lowlanders don't have on average anyway. Now, do you think that's something that is, um, that you're born, like if you're born at high altitude being within generations of people that are living at high altitude versus like, let's say you take yourself and you live at high altitude for five years or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, so now you're in a state of chronic exposure to that high altitude. Do you, do you think that the, the spleen would adapt similarly to that of, uh, a Sherpa, for example, or is it one of those things where you're either born with it or you're not some of like, you know, like we know about some of the other blood changes where you're, you're, if you're born with it, you have those cool adaptations. If you're not, you can live up at high altitude as long as you want. You're never going to get them. Yeah. I, I, these are all unknowns, Nick. <laughs> um, <laughs> because as I was saying earlier, there's a difference between genetic adaptations and populations versus say a developmental adaptation from having grown up at altitude. And, you yeah. know, eventually we want to ask that question about, you know, people, if we can find a population of genetic Sherpa who grew up in Kathmandu um, versus genetic Sherpa who grew up up high and see yeah. how some of those differences might be to try and tease apart the developmental aspect. Because uh, it's really unknown how what the effect of growing up at a high altitude are. There's a few people working on high altitude kids um, that might be fruitful um, to answer some of these questions. Um, but I think these are just big question marks still to tease apart the developmental versus genetic aspects compared to the fact that all of us up there, Sherpa and Lowlanders, both are acclimatized as well. So Sherpa will yeah. also deacclimatize when we come down from the mountains in the same way that oh, you and I would. Yeah. Um, and so teasing apart those differences, I think, is a, is pretty interesting, and but also really difficult to do. But it keeps people yeah. like us in jobs. <laughs> did, did you did you guys do any exercise up there as well? Um, I was just wondering if you hauled up some bikes. Yeah. In 2012, on Phil's expedition at the Pyramid Lab, uh, my student, Mike, made what we often joked about being a, a portable light uh, cycle ergometer. And it was neither portable nor light. <laughs> um, but basically <laughs> welded together this bike that you could lie down on the ground on your back and cycle. So imagine sort of a, you're, you know, you're lying on your back and, and using your legs to cycle um, yeah. with this little, um, with this little ergometer that you can measure wattage and that kind of stuff. And then doing all kinds of ultrasound on, on the neck and the heart um, during exercise. So the 2012 expedition, we did a bunch of exercise studies at 5,000 meters where people's VO2 max was half of that of sea level because of the oxygen level was about half as well. So really? incredible uh, to do a VO2 max test at 5,000 meters. So that's what we're going to yeah. do this year with Sherpa versus Lowlanders. We're going to do a VO2 max test in Kathmandu on Lowlanders and, and Sherpa that are deacclimatized. So they're, we're yeah. recruiting them in Kathmandu. And then we're going to ascend together, acclimatize together to 4,000 meters to a little lodge there and set up a new lab and then redo the VO2 max tests again uh, on the Lowlanders and Highlanders together. And then look at, you know, some, uh, their performance, look at some genomic aspects, look at the spleen volume, look at the blood responses, all those kinds of things. How so, are you getting an ultrasound machine up, or is it like a portable ultra, ultrasound yeah. machine? Yeah. It's a portable oh. one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just imagining that big, you know, that old Honeywell or GE machine oh, yeah. that's on a wheel. I'm like, how the is it getting up there? No, they're just, they're small, uh, they're laptop style ultrasound machines. So we can carry them on an oh. airplane, put them in the overhead compartment and then someone carries it up for us <laughs> uh, to the lodges. Is yeah. there ever, is there any, any issue getting the equipment on the plane? I, I found a couple boxes, um, in the lab that said from Jay Dean when he came to oh, visit, yeah. I guess many years ago. Um, and you know, he's got all of his wild physiology measuring stuff, mm -hmm. but anyways, it was, it was like taped up in this box. You know, it was, it was in sort of our, every lab has that Smithsonian archive of old stuff. Yeah. And so yeah. anyways, I, I was digging through it because 
because whatever the, the the college was like hey you have to get rid of this because it's like becoming a fire hazard at this point and i'm like well yeah. it's cool mm -hmm. stuff but really anyways cool, yeah. uh one of the box yeah one of the boxes said for scientific research do not you know open or do not take and i'm sure tsa just loved that yeah, yeah but yeah. you know because it just looks like some weird you know old age torture equipment but <laughs> but is there ever any uh issues when you're when you're traveling has any of the uh, equipment ever gotten confiscated? Yeah, I've heard stories about uh, people losing equipment in Peru or in Ethiopia. We've had pretty good luck with Nepal, but it's one of those risks that you just take. You know, in the 2016 expedition, a bunch of our Pelican cases and our luggage got stuck in Toronto. Um, and I think we we're just too many of us with too much gear and they had to bring it in on a separate flight. And so we didn't get our bags until two days later. So we were in Kathmandu for a couple of days without our personal bags, without our research gear. And we're like, what are we going to do? Um, you know, the, the flight leaves on a certain day. We've got it planned with our guide team. Um, and then luckily, two days later, all the Pelican cases arrived. One, because it had a lithium, like a, like a, a portable battery in it, um, arrived uh -huh. even later still. So I think that that got flagged and they opened up the, the Pelican case and looked at it and then sent it along. So luckily we didn't need it, um, but we brought one as a backup and it did get hung up. But that's the only story I've got. Everything made, wow. usually makes it to Kathmandu. And then it's crazy. We load it on this small little plane and it's flowed up to this small little airport called Lukla at 2,800 meters. Everything arrives and then it's transported by humans or animals all the way up to up high and then back down again. And it's just crazy to think that we haven't lost equipment along the way. It's one of those risks I'd to take, say. though. <laughs> you got to put in your grant. Like, we just need an extra pool, ju uh, just in case fun, in case we yeah, suddenly yeah. lose one of our A to D boards. We got to yeah. get another ten thousand dollar. But yeah, what if you use what do you use ADI software for a lot of that stuff? I think I saw your video up on on there. Oh yeah, yeah. ADI was kind enough to sponsor our 2016 expedition and send a team along to take some videos and pictures and, and, and lent us a system to support the work. Uh, but yeah, most of us are using AD instruments, uh, power lab systems. Huh? That's kind of crazy. Yeah. And then any other peripheral device, like an ultrasound machine or something like that as well. Oh, that's kind of cool. Is that, is the, is the research for the altitude stuff? Is that grant funded? Yeah. Or is it university funded? How does that, that work? Yeah, most of my work has been. Yeah, it's it, we have a we have a federal grant agency called NSERC, Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, NSERC. That's basically the equivalent of the US NSF Natural Sciences Foundation. So sort of basic science engineering research. Um, and so I've, you know, the, these grants are usually about 5 years and they support programs of research yeah. as opposed to just projects. And then cobble together student salaries from internal and external sources and so you're often putting putting together a package of an envelope of funding from all kinds of places to make it happen. Um, and uh, uh, that's always adds a bit of stress, right? Are we going to lend this salary grant so the student can come along? <laughs> I mean, it's also a big risk for um, as far as publications go, right? I mean, because when it comes to the the field research type of things, I mean, you sort of are putting all in on these trips that are, you know, you're going there and you're collecting data for maybe a couple of years uh, and then coming back and it's not like if a, an, a re reviewer wants something else, it's not like you can just quickly fly back to Nepal, send them up and then do it. You're sort of, you know, here's the data and, uh, we're going to make it work. Yeah. Have you ever gotten any kickback from reviewers? Sure. All the time. The, the kinds of things that we like to control in lab experiments, you just can't control for, um, you get for, in terms of recruitment, yeah. you know, you get who you get. Um, whereas if you're in a lab, you can spend a little more a little more time making sure you get sort of equal numbers of males and females, or you know a certain age group. Uh, those kind of, you can control diet a lot better. You know all the kind of things you care you care about and think about when it comes to a lab experiment for controlling variables. You know they go out the window when you're up high. Um, and so the good thing is that we're collecting data that's pretty novel that you know oftentimes people don't have. And so you know you might get away with a lower end or lower number of participants, uh, an underpowered study, uh, a bit more than you would if it was a lab study. And so there's always that balance between feasibility and novelty that we're always pushing. And, and sometimes those two things can't be reconciled. 
<laughs> I always I always kind of respected the the research that just sort of took random populations and just like saw what happened because translationally I think it's more relevant. I mean, right. I personal bias but yep. you know because a lot of times we'll see even with some of the respiratory research in the lab on the rodents where everything is super highly controlled yep. even from one recording rig in the same lab to another recording rig in another lab you're gonna get two like it'll be consistent among mm-hmm. the machine that you're using if i always measure this response on this machine i'm gonna get this result but if I do the exact same test on this other machine on the other side of the room, it always gives me a slightly different response. And so now you have like two different responses within mm. the exact same lab, just using two different machines. Man. And it's always comes down to like, eh. you know, like, for example, we have one where we were studying uh, like the mechanism of why you sigh, you know, take a bigger mm. augmented breath. Uh, and we had one rig, as you know, we call it where we would stick the mouse in and we record from it. And whenever they were in this rig, we would always get these, you know, rhythmic sighs that would occur every once in a while. We have another rig, which I do a lot of my recordings on, where they never sigh. Like, we've never really recorded a sigh ever from this rig. In the same room, it's just 10 feet apart, but like, (laughs) something's weird. You know, the the scientific voodoo. Yeah. But for for the field studies or for the the diverse population type of studies, those things sort of wash out. And I, you know, I like the fact that if you do get a response, it's real for the most part. Yeah. Like it's, it has so, right? to be a pretty big response. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, our goal, all of us lab or field work experiments uh, alike, we're looking for a signal in the noise. There's always noise. There's always variability. Yeah. Um, and so you hope that your measurements are robust enough that you'll pick up a signal that stands out outside of that variability noise. But I think, you know, it, perhaps this isn't a tangent, but I, I think that variability is the point. You know, like um, the fact that some people have big responses and some people have small responses. I think when I was a trainee, I'd get annoyed by that. The, the error bar is really big and I'd get mad because it screws up my stats. But I think we should pay attention to that variability because <laughs> yeah. that tells you something about what's going on. That, you know, people that respond in this way might be a different group or have a different phenotype than people that respond in this way. So instead of grouping them all together and yeah. looking at the big air bar and, and swearing at it, perhaps pay attention to responders <laughs> and non-responders because that might tell you something. Um, I mean, but yeah, it, sometimes you put the same person on the same measurement all the time just for, for, um, for repeatability sake. You know, those kinds of things help a little bit. So if you know the same person's doing, working the blood gas machine, then at least you know that any errors are yeah. internally consistent. <laughs> yeah. Measurement consistency. But now you're just, you know, stroking my ego because I had that whole paper on variability in opioids. But, yeah. you know, yeah. that was, I, I, I took some, I, yeah, I took the brains out and took the brain stems out. And I was right when I started as a postdoc and I said, you know, try all these different drugs and see which one reverses opioids. Find a new cure for opioid-induced yeah. respiratory depression. And I thought, yeah. okay, simple enough. I'll take yeah, the brains yeah. out, stick it in the dish, record. <laughs> And, you know, I was given the fentanyl and I was given the morphine and, and like only half of the brains actually had a response. The other ones didn't. And then there was this like gigantic error bar that was bigger than the response itself. And I was right, like, right. how am I going to find a cure if we don't even have the same response? And so I was like, screw it. I'm just going to figure out the variability. And that's sort of what we did. Yeah. Awesome. Which, you know, why, why is this, sl- why is this brain shutting off and why is this brain not shutting off and how can we make a responder a non-responder and yeah. You know, you get right. the idea. That's cool. But, well, I mean, anesthetists see this all the time it's, okay. and, and emerge docs see this all the time in hospitals, right? That some people are, are really sensitive to opioids and, and have a quick depression in their breathing and other people don't. Um, and so I think you're onto something there that, uh, you know, not all humans are the same either. Right. So that's yeah. cool. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. But, uh, so for, so, so you got all the, the high altitude research you're doing the um uh figuring out sort of what is it that makes you adapt to these high altitudes and what makes some people sick and what makes other people not sick and can we make the people that do get sick somewhat similar to the people that don't get sick um as far as high altitude uh acute mountain sickness i guess you could mm-hmm. call it but um a lot of what you're also doing too is what what i respected a lot was the a lot of the outreach of education and uh, pushing some of the stuff to, you know, one of the things that I, when we first met, I think I was still a graduate student mm-hmm. at, at one of the meetings. And uh, I, I found that you were really good at making it so that everyone was included and could understand 
the research. You know, a lot of times when you're a, a student that's just a fledgling in the field and you put your own little hypothesis out there and it just gets absolutely demolished. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you were, you, you were one of the, uh, the people that looked at it, you know, some of the data that I was presenting and said, Hey, this is might be kind of interesting, you know? And then I go back and I look at it 10 years later and I'm like, well, this was garbage. Why is not, <laughs> but the, you know, the, the, the idea was solid, but, uh, what is it? Do you have anything that, um, you know, that you're have formally going on that is sort of pushing some of the communication aspects or outreach or anything like that within the scientific communities mm-hmm. or, you know, pushing that out to the public? Well, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you asked about that because it's, and I'm glad that I made that impression because you're never really sure how you come across, right? We're all pretty socially awkward as scientists, I think. Um, even those of us that come across as gregarious, I think we're we're also, you know, crawling into our little <laughs> shells at night in the hotel room after. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think you know there's this growing movement of, in knowledge translation or outreach or science communication to general audiences that I think is really interesting and important. You know, and it's not to say that every scientist is going to have a knack for it or should focus on it, because I think the scientific endeavor is hard enough, right? Like getting grants, training students, buying equipment, having, you know, keeping up with the literature, uh, publishing papers, it's all hard enough. And now to ask scientists to also think about, you know, now doing outreach to communities and high schools and, you know, podcasts and the public uh, is a lot to ask some people. But I think, I think if a, a core, a critical mass of us start to take training in this, and think about a different kind of audience and focus on not just our scientific peers, which is where, you know, peer review is the cornerstone of our work, right? Having other people evaluate, other experts evaluate your work. I still believe in that, however flawed it is. But, you know, so the taxpayers funded our salaries and funded the studies through our grants, right? And I think they're the stakeholders ultimately in this, advancing knowledge, understanding how the world works. And so I think we need to do a better job of I'm not sure I like the word scientific literacy because I'm not sure we're going to fix that with, you know, a bunch of people doing outreach. Um, but I think you know, yeah. my feeling is, you know, ultimately, if someone's antagonistic to scientific perspectives, you're just going to entrench them further by trying to give them evidence. So I'm not sure arguing on Facebook is going to solve any of that. Um, but I think if we make yeah. science normal, make science cool, exciting, accessible, relevant, you know, and, and if enough of us are doing that, like your podcast here, then I think we might move the needle on more people that way because it's science is relevant. We've created a science, a society that's based on science and technology, and yet so few people really understand it. Um, so I think we just need to do a better job of just making science cool and or showing people why yeah. and making it relevant and accessible and interesting. And then the rest will come out in the wash, right? Um, so I, I took some formal yeah. training in science communication at, uh, it's called the BAMP center. And it's just this little artist commune conference center, um, training facility down the road in, in, in Banff, um, with some, some experts in this topic and then started doing some outreach stuff around music. So we've spent the last sort of 12 years working with a band and a science broadcaster, putting together these science shows that have music elements and what's cooler than rock and roll and you know the science and rock and roll together um so we've made shows around the brain or about mars or the moon um and just you know give these talks with live band at at, uh, theaters or universities or or uh, or festivals and i think it's kind of a just a different cool use of my brain that's different than the lab side um so it's just, uh, I think it's something that more and more of us are thinking about. I think there's a lot of really bad science communication out there as well. So I think we all need to, yeah. to, to get formally trained uh, and, um, and think about it. Because uh, it's just as hard as publishing a scientific paper. It's just, um, it's just a different kind of communication aimed at a different kind of audience. Yeah, I, I've, I found that for the most part, at least for our listener base that we have here, um, it's it's you know, the, the amount of information that most people want to learn is more than you would ex- expect going in. You know, a, a lot of times you just sort of like, you, you just think, okay, I'm just going to make it super, everything super simple. And it's like, no, it's most of the time everyone wants to understand what's going on. What are the intricate mechanisms? Maybe we don't understand all the words as we're going yeah. along, but who cares? Yeah. Like that's phonetics. We'll figure it out as we go along. We can, we can Google things. And most of the time, you know, it's actually kind of cool to, to take everybody for a little bit of a scientific ride. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm finding, uh, it's almost 
kind of like a double-edged sword sometimes because I understand from the translation aspect that everything you know should be very focused if we're going to do biomedical research on saying this is we're going to come up with a new cure that we can readily implement into the clinic and I totally get that and I'm all for it but on the flip side I, I almost sometimes I find it somewhat saddening when you see that some of the basic scientific research into just understanding how you know how the world works mm -hmm. how different animals do different things a lot of that funding seems to be harder and harder to get and everything is becoming more focused on translation right. and so like it's you know it's it's you can see pros and cons of each of those but yeah. sometimes you know going up to those posters at some of the conferences and it's showing how a frog can hold its breath for you know 20 minutes underwater and what makes it being able to do that and you're like oh it's kind of cool yeah yeah but you know the average person doesn't see the relevance of that stuff right and so i think but you know we're not going to solve neurological diseases by just funding clinical researchers studying specific uh patient populations right and i think you you get this as a basic neuroscientist yeah. like we have to understand how the nervous system works and then we can solve all of it. So I, I think there's an important role still <laughs> for basic science and basic understanding for its own sake. Like, so when people ask at parties, like, why, what are you working on and why do we care? You know, we care because it's interesting and it's unknown. I, I really think that's enough of a, of an answer. It doesn't fly on grant applications, of course, yeah. but I think basic science still has an important role to play in just, like you said, understanding the world. And from that, if, if, if it can then be applied to, to patient populations, all the better. Um, but you never know, like, you know what, you and yeah. I have spent a lot of time reading well, those papers from the sixties and seventies, and you just never know where that information is going to go in the future and who you'll inspire, who those papers will inspire, um, along the way. Yeah. So if you want to just solve consciousness while you're up there <laughs> at, uh, base camp, yeah. you know, yeah. it's just on it. If you want to add that on there real quick, sure. just, yeah. uh, let me know what you find. I'll throw an yeah. amendment into my ethics application. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, no you know, I'm yeah. sure probably with some of the, uh, the, the natives, uh, within that area, they probably know a bit more about some of the, the aspects of consciousness than we've ever even thought about before. <laughs> At least yeah, that's probably. what I was finding. Yeah. My, my but, first degree was in psychology, but I feel like I have no, no place dabbling in that cognitive function, um, meditation I world. It's, it's, uh, I have no expertise, so I'm happy to let other people do it and <laughs> learn from them but <laughs> well, once we figure out how to make mice do some breath work then we'll we'll start to understand more things yeah, but yeah <laughs> i don't know we'll see so with uh so 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 with bringing science and communication and bringing it out into the future what is it um you know we talked about some of the spleen stuff that you're that you're working on uh for some of the future studies what else you got cooking in the pot for uh you know having ideas for for next trips or anything like that yeah um i mean that the spleen the spleen work is taking up a lot of oxygen in the room so to speak so focusing a lot on that right now um but you and i met over you know questions around acid base balance changes in carbon dioxide and the higher low perspectives i was studying the low side and you're studying the high side um and I'm still really interested in that. And I think, you know, there's lots of work to be done around the integration between breathing, which affects CO2, and the kidneys, which affects acid-base balance. And that kind of integration and interaction mm -hmm. between those organ systems, whether it's at altitude and your CO2 is low, or, you know, you're on the space station where you're exposed to, you know, a little bit higher any, or any occupational setting when the CO2 is a bit higher. Um, so I'm really interested yeah. in, you know, with this push with Artemis and, and the moon, we've just announced the three NASA and one Canadian astronaut that are going to go around the moon next year. Um, I think there's a lot of interest in, in occupational effects of high CO2 and uh, really interested in maybe some analog studies of space flight, um, whether it's working or sleeping in space and not so much the microgravity of space, but more so the, the incrementally higher carbon dioxide in these space stations because they can't scrub it all. And even through COVID, yeah. we've learned a lot about ventilation in rooms you know, people carrying these little portable CO2 monitors around and noticing that, oh, God, the, the CO2 is higher in here because it's poorly ventilated and there's 10 people, you know, breathing carbon dioxide down and it's accumulating. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested, I yeah. think, for my next grant and in, in looking at that integration between respiratory and kidney responses to changes in carbon dioxide. So I'm sure we'll be in touch <laughs> over the years, given your pretty background soon we're gonna, topic. Yeah, pretty soon we're going to have to put a joint project together with low CO2 and, or excuse me, high CO2 and low oxygen together. Cause then we can 
we can uh, do some space missions that'll save money on oxygen. Don't we don't have to fly a, a gigantic bomb, you know, with a hundred percent O2 yeah. and yeah. Uh, then reduce some of the scrubbing. But uh, right. yeah, that'll be yeah. well. You put your finger on it. Artemis is a is a little bit depressurized compared to the space station. Space station's pressurized to sea level, seven sixty millimeters of mercury. But Artemis is going to be, yeah. and I've just learned this from people I know that work there at NASA. It's going to be a little lower, um, so they will be a bit hypoxic now, and ah. and they have sort of limits for safety for different levels of carbon dioxide if the scrubbing technology fails. So you know they're quite worried about the effects on astronaut health and safety. Uh, if if some of this technology um, doesn't work so well, um, so they're still trying to work out what what are the absolute safety limits for carbon dioxide. So all of your hypercapnia yeah. work is actually really relevant, Nick. <laughs> to ask, who, who knew that hypercapnia goats would be relevant to astronauts in space? <laughs> I know, I know. That was the that was the thing that we were trying to convince them. But we were well, you know, it's it was always underappreciated that trying to get projects. Um, passed from ethics boards and and not not even ethics boards but for safety committees because compressed gas is basically like a bomb you know and so you just have to like make sure that the they're safe away from any sort of sparks but when we were submitting some of the Mm -hmm. stuff for nasa funding uh they wanted us to to figure out how to do everything in microgravity and so i was trying to figure out how Mm -hmm. you know how are we going to study goats in microgravity and how am i going to catch this like (laughs) floating goat that was trying to headbutt you (laughs) That's a great band name, the Floating Goats. <laughs> <I'd see them. laughs> so maybe, yeah, maybe we have to uh, we have to use your expertise in, in humans there because floating goats might be out of the realm. I mean, yeah. I'm not. Uh, it would be fun. Oh, it's you know, I'm in. I'm in. There's, there's always one of those things to be said about getting up to do a presentation, and you're like, I'm going to tell you about goats. You have everyone's attention instantly. Yeah, like, there's yeah. no question about yeah. it. I mean, it's, it comes back to that uh, science communication perspective. Like, you know, how do you capture the imagination of an audience and tell an outlandish story and you've yeah. got them, right? And uh, so, you know, I think back to, <laughs> back to our thoughts earlier, I, you know, our, as scientists, we get so hung up on the specific details and nuances of our methods and, you know, the accuracy, the absolute accuracy of every statement. Um, and I think, you know, that tension between journalists and scientists lives right there. Because journalists and, and, and sort of general communicators are storytellers. So what's the story? And that, yeah. of course, is going to have to miss some of the nuances. But then scientists hear so much about the accuracy and the nuances that they forget to be storytellers sometimes. And so I think we can both learn from each other that, yeah, keep the accuracy as yeah. much as you can. But, but tell, us, tell an outlandish story about people and, and all of a sudden the audience cares, right? Or floating goats. We're gonna have to, <laughs> yeah, floating goats. We're gonna we're gonna have to implement a uh, a stand up routine for you know for for new trainees at some of the uh, meetings. They're gonna have some required stand up yeah. like five minute routine where they're gonna have to entertain people with yeah. some science. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if you know Alan Alda from from Mash fame, um, an actor who was in Mash in the seventies. Uh, started a started a science communication center and trains scientists oh. in improvisation. And I've been doing really? a little bit of that as well. So. It's amazing how science students, often students, actually take to it pretty well. Um, you know, and you could come up with some, some uh, you know, uh, utilitarian reason why scientists should take improv classes in terms of like overcoming stage fright and making you a better public speaker. Sure, okay. But for me, it's just about learning to be hyper-present, you know, learning how to respond to people in real time. And it does help your talks uh. to be a little more, to be a little less scripted and a little more responsive to an audience. Um, yeah. so I think it does pay off, but you know, um, I think improvisation training is actually a, a, a useful thing. So it's not crazy that you brought it up <laughs> and I've seen some yeah, of these the- sessions at EB actually in the past. Oh, interesting. Well, I'll have to take a look at maybe the, the feet staring scientist will no longer be the, the norm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One yeah, improv at a time, hopefully. but yeah, yeah, hopefully either way. <laughs> All right. Well, we're coming up on the hour flew by. This is uh, yeah. this has been an exciting ride. Thanks well, thanks, for, uh, yeah, thanks for talk. yeah, thanks for divulging into the world of hypoxia and bringing science up into altitude and doing cross country or cross you know nation research and some of the stuff that absolutely fascinating papers. That's for sure. Well, thanks for saying so. I uh, all I want to do is cool things in cool places with cool people. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Next trip is uh, this year. Next year, when's the next? When's the next uh, trek up there? Uh, yeah, a month from right now. So um, 
will be in exactly a month. We'll be we'll be in transit and uh, land on May sixth. Land in Kathmandu May sixth, and um, spend about two weeks doing baseline testing on Sherpa and Lowlanders, and then fly up, uh, head up the mountain, and then come back down uh, in early June. So um, so the next, so we're a month away from going back. Um, lots of logistics to work out still, but uh, wow. I think it's going to happen. <laughs> Flights are booked, so better. So next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll figure out, uh, sometime I'll get a sabbatical, we'll bring a goat along, just carry it up with us. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. All that, all that horse and goat work from the seventies. We just don't see it anymore. So let's, uh, let's bring it back, Nick. We'll bring it back. Yeah. We'll, we'll bring it back. All right. www.theneuronetwork.org, uh, for, anything related to research or the podcast, Apple, Spotify, uh, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, pretty much any social media platform. We are on there. So uh, for anyone listening, give us a follow, review, like, or dislike, be honest. And, uh, you know, it all actually does help. And Trevor, thanks for joining us. It's been a wild ride. One of the, uh, one of the whole animal, human field physiologists that's left in the field. And, uh, like I said, I can't tell you how much I respect the work that you do and, uh, certainly has had an impact on my training and, uh, has provided motivation along the way. So I will tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks Nick for saying so. Um, yeah, it works both ways, man. Works both ways. 